Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. This is God's holy word. Let's give attention to it. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. If you go back to verse 9 through 11, which we've read as well, along with verse, verses 12 through 13, which we're going to be looking at specifically today, you remember that we are talking about the fact that we began to look into somehow the inner working of the Trinity. What we began to see is that the Trinity is this self-sacrificing, serving of one another, loving glorifying being. Three persons in one that live to love one another. What we talked about last week was that in one sense there's this idea of this singing going on between the Trinity, of this exaltation with the Father saying to the Son, with you I am well pleased. With the Son saying to the Father, I always listen to my Father. I always obey the Father. The Spirit saying, I live to put the spotlight on Jesus. We see this inner working going on. And we began to talk about the fact that the two great commandments which Jesus gives, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, is rooted right there in the Trinity. Because the Trinity loves God first. They love each other first. But out of that love, they have created and extended themselves to love others. Not because they needed love from the others, but because they wanted to extend love to them. Not because they had to, but because they wanted to. Now, we have to begin to understand that because we weren't in Genesis that long ago. And remember, we talked about the opening chapter being almost like a song that God created in this celebratory sense of singing the creation into existence, this beautiful, glorious creation. And that that came out of the very essence of who the Trinity was, not in the sense of its physicality, but in the sense of its nature, in the sense of the creation was made to glorify God, because that's what God does. He glorifies Himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, glorifying. And thus we realize that we were made to glorify God, and the way we do it most assuredly is to love God first and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's what we looked at last week. We looked at, we are called to be like God in that sense. But I want you to understand that love is at the very heart of the Trinity. 
love is always moving forward from the Trinity to one another and from the Trinity to us. And that has to change how we process life. It has to do something to us as we look. And so I want to look at how that begins to flow then into this next section that oftentimes is separated and said, the temptation of Jesus. The whole reason why I gave you the title, a temptation of Jesus, is not so much for the A to stand out that much to you. It's only to be striking and to say that a temptation of Jesus, I thought this was the temptation of Jesus, and that's erroneous thinking. Jesus was tempted from the time he came up out of that water until the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' whole life was one big bowl of temptation. If you think Satan basically said, okay, I asked him three questions, he didn't give in, well, I lost, let's lay down and die, wrong. Cosmic issues are in play. Satan does not give up that easily. And really the reason why Mark lets us into this little place right here and what he's wanting us to see again is to kind of get the sense that throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, it shouldn't surprise us when Jesus meets opposition. Because see, in the desert, he met opposition. And that opposition is not going to stop. And it's interesting because Mark, in the way he writes his, he does not see this so much as an episode. If you notice, he says... Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He doesn't even lay it down to just three questions being asked like Matthew and Luke do. He says he was being tempted, giving us this sense of this ongoing reality that was Jesus' experience at the hands of Satan. And we need to begin to process that as well and understand that when the writer of Hebrews says to you, Jesus understands what it's like to suffer and be tempted and to hurt like you do. It's not just nice platitudes. As we look in the gospel, we see it's the stone cold truth. There's no way to get away from it. Jesus understands what we're going through better than we understand it often ourselves. He's been there. He's experienced it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, when, when my daughter is on this eighth grade trip and she's going to D.C. and then they're going to Gettysburg and Philadelphia and then on to New York City. And if I'm lucky, out of all the money that many of you graciously helped her to earn so she could go on this trip, um, I might get a keychain or a T-shirt. <laughs> Maybe. And that's if she's in a really generous mood. The point I'm trying to get across to you is Jesus didn't get the T-shirt. He lived it. And I think too often we think about Jesus as a guy walking around with a T-shirt on saying New York City. Instead of being a real human being that walked it and lived it. He walked the streets. He lived among sinners. He experienced the realities of our hurts and pains. And unlike us, He didn't give in. And we have to start to look in and see that person 
And that's what I want to do as we look through these very brief verses. They're not long. It's a pretty brief, but as Mark is going to show us over and over again, he loads a boatload of information into very small phrases. So let's begin to look. The first way I want us to approach this and look at this is the better one. My three points are the better one, the obedient one, and the greater one. And here's how we're going to look at this. The better one first. Notice what's happening here. And, you know, we might as people who just pick up the the gospel of Mark and have no idea what's really going on in the Old Testament, we might read this and go, I don't really see what's so significant. But the key we need to see throughout the Old Testament was every time God selected someone, he always poured out his spirit upon them. He anointed them with the Spirit and enabled them to accomplish what He had set forth. The interesting thing is that while we have some pretty dramatic, you know, when David's anointed king, it tells us that the Spirit rushed upon him. We have some interesting places in the Old Testament. Nothing has the heavens being rent open, the Spirit coming down like a dove, and the Father saying, Well done, my beloved Son. There is something unique happening here. And for anyone who has any knowledge of the Old Testament at all and how the Spirit was given in the Old Testament, it stands out. It's striking. It's code language. This is the one that's been anointed by the Spirit at His baptism. And He seems to be different than all the ones that have come before Him. There's something different. Because all of them were set about for a task John's already told us in this gospel that this one's going to be baptizing with the Spirit. He's set apart. He's different. He's better. Now, who's he better than? What's the idea that's being laid out here? Well, where we kind of start to understand, again, Mark has some sense of code words, is he's driven out to the wilderness. Well, we know that... In the Old Testament, a lot of times people were out in the wilderness. Moses was out in the wilderness. Elijah was out in the wilderness. The children of Israel as a nation were taken out into the desert or the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, he was there for 40 days. The mention of the 40 days would immediately draw to anyone who had some knowledge of the Old Testament, to Moses most especially. How long was Moses on Mount Sinai? 40 days. But it also would draw people's minds to the great prophet Elijah who spent 40 days walking to Mount Horeb. Now the distinction we have between Jesus and them is when you come to the end of the 40 days, what does Moses get? He gets the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. When you get to the end of the journey with Elijah to Mount Horeb, God speaks to him. So in, one, in a real sense, both of these men get to the end of their 40 days and they have some sense of respite. That, that it's, it's kind of like, this is why you went in there for the 40 days. But Jesus does not. Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness being tempted not to have some sense of closure to His ministry, but to inaugurate it, to launch Him out. Which means that while he shares similarities to his predecessors, he's the better one. They could not ultimately bring about the salvation of Israel. They could not ultimately bring about a light to the Gentiles. But Mark is saying this one can. 
He's a better one. Now, before we leave this, I want you to understand that it's not just those two particular prophets, Moses being the prophetic savior, Elijah, Elijah being best known for being the prophetic healer. Elijah healed people. If you remember, we're going to hear later on. Has anyone ever been healed like this since the days of Elijah? Answer, no. Elijah was known for being a great healer. Moses was known for being the great savior of the people out of the bondage of Egypt. And so we see them pointing us. But the thing that's also being looked at here is the idea of the children of Israel spending 40 years wandering the wilderness because of their sin. And Israel was said to be God's son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Originally, that passage in Hosea was looking back to the nation of Israel, God's son. But what they ultimately were pointing to was how Matthew uses that passage when it says that he was taken into Egypt to escape Herod so that out of Egypt, I would call my true son. See, part of what's being said here is that Jesus is the better Israel. He's the Israel that Israel could never be. He's the better son. He's the better Israel. He's the better prophet. He's the better king. He's the better priest. He's the better one. And before we leave this point, I want you to start to ask this question. Why would Jesus leave heaven to do this? Why would the Heavenly Father, who's experiencing this great harmony, send Him? Why would God orchestrate history in such a way that all these things that were happening in real time and space were also setting up the coming of the better one? Why? Because of love. Because of love. See, we have to see the reality that out of the Trinity is coming love. Why would Jesus, who knew no sin, go out into the wilderness? The reason why the children of Israel wandered for 40 years was because of their sin. And He goes out who knew no sin. Why? Because of love. The second thing I want us to look at then is the obedient one. One of the things that several commentators brought up, which I thought was totally cool because I hadn't really thought about this, and I was really, this is why you read commentaries sometimes because they, those guys actually do know a little bit of something. They are helpful at times. And one of the things they brought up was the fact that in none of the um, Gospels do we ever get any sense that anybody was out in the wilderness with Jesus. He's out there by himself. How did they find out? Well, I mean, you could go the super spiritual route and say, well, God told them. But I'd rather kind of say it's a super spiritual route of saying that Jesus told them. Jesus relayed these things to his apostles. This is what happened to me out in the wilderness. And there's a sense in which you start to see that Jesus has this understanding of who he is. Because see, the idea that Jesus is relaying this information is telling you, I get that I'm the better son. I get that I'm the better one. I understand that. Now the point is we understand that Jesus has a self-awareness that he's God. 
And that really has to start to kind of start to create some firing in our synapses. This is a human being that is perfect. And the second person of the Godhead walking around with people like us. Now, no matter how lofty you think of yourself, I don't think anybody in this room thinks of themselves as without any error and as divine. If you do, please stand up. We need to talk after the service. <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying? But that's really who he is. And can't you think about this as a person when you're told to do something by your imperfect boss or when you're told to do something by somebody else and you're thinking to help that person there? Them? What have they ever done but create problems and cause irritations and create dissension? And Because isn't that the truth? Isn't, isn't that the truth? That's what Jesus is looking as he looks at us. What have they ever done that actually did anything that promoted anything that we created them for? They're always screwing it up. They're always doing it wrong. And you begin to see how incredible it is that Jesus says, Yes, Father, I delight to do your will, even if it means going and loving and caring for these people. This becomes important for us to see this because we start to get an insight into how Satan is looking at Jesus. Jesus is self-aware of who he is. Jesus is self-aware of how he's come. Jesus is self-aware of who we are. And the interesting thing is that if you were to go to read the other Gospels, and I encourage you to do that later, what you start to see both in Mark and in those other Gospels is this idea that Satan never tries to get Jesus to deny that he's the Son of God. In fact, Satan wants him to own that fully from Satan's perspective. Really own that you're God. And if you're God, do something. Now, do you understand what's at play here is, is that what we're beginning to see as to how the Trinity works again, we're starting to get an insight of Jesus' role and what he's taken himself to. Could Jesus have said, bread? Could Jesus have said, army of angels? You know, it's kind of like that episode I want you to think about where, where Gandalf is having the, the interaction with Frodo, and Frodo says, here, I'll give you the ring, and, and Gandalf won't take it, and he won't touch it. And he said, no, because I would become a worse. I would become just as evil, if not more evil, than Sauron, the great eye. I wouldn't be spared from it. And it's almost like what Satan is saying. Jesus, all you got to do is just say, this is what I want to do. Become self-actualized. Become self-aware. Just show a little guts, man, and show some independence. Grow up. Quit being daddy's boy. That's really what's going on in the temptation. 
Just show a little autonomous guts, man. Step up to the plate. That's really what's at play when Satan is tempting Jesus. He doesn't want him to deny he's the Son of God. He rather wants him to act independent of God. And do you understand that had Jesus chosen to do that, what ultimately that would have created? Chaos and destruction. Now, within this, I want to say this. For those of you that are a little more theologically trained and you want to say, wait a minute, Jesus couldn't have done... That's not the point. Whether Jesus could have fallen into sin or couldn't have fallen into sin, I leave for those in seminary to figure out. If you want to know what I think, you can ask me afterwards. But I don't want you to miss the point. Satan is not playing around. He really wants Jesus to think quote-unquote, for himself, and to act, quote-unquote, for himself. And do you understand that to do that is completely contrary to being God? It's also completely contrary to being a human being. In other words, what Satan really wanted Jesus to do was to destroy God and once again to destroy humanity. Because Jesus is the only way humanity has any hope of getting back to what Adam lost. We need a true human being who does what a true human being is supposed to do. That is glorify God and love His neighbor. And out of the Trinity is coming one who glorifies God and loves His neighbor. Had Satan succeeded, he would have destroyed it all. And that's what he's after. And if you just try to give these theological constructs and kind of make this very cerebral, you miss the heart and soul of what we're being told here in Mark. That Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. And you understand what's on the line. Our salvation. And Jesus obeys so that we might be saved. We needed a better one. We needed an obedient one. And the question you might say to yourself, and you might ask yourself, why would Jesus endure all of that? Why would He put Himself through it? Why come here? For people who constantly change their minds and change their allegiances and change their affections. Because of love. Because of love. Now, the third thing I want us to look at is that Jesus is the greater one. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke, like I've said before, deal more extensively with a particular confrontation that Jesus has with Satan in the desert. But Mark alone, as I've said before, wants to really draw us into feeling the weight of this ongoing, this, this continuous, if you will, oppression that Jesus feels from Satan. He's constantly adding, constantly trying to trip him up, constantly trying to create a problem for him. But we also have some other things to look at that give us some clues as to what's, being, what's happening here. Because it tells us, and he, that being Jesus, was with the wild animals. When God placed Adam in the garden, what was his relationship to the creation? 
There's a complete harmony. All the planets lined up correctly. Everything was spinning in harmony. And it was placed not in the wilderness. It was placed in a garden, not a desert, not a deserted place, a lush garden with rivers flowing out of it and good gold not that far away. And here's Jesus standing in the desert in the middle of nowhere surrounded by wild animals. Not animals that come when He calls and does what He bids. Animals that are wild. What Mark is trying to get you to understand is is that the second Adam didn't enter the world with everything stacked in his favor. He entered the world with everything stacked against him. Satan is against him. He's not in a garden. He's in a desert. And he's surrounded by wild creatures. And there's a sense in which you should have this notion that Jesus is all alone. Yet the text doesn't leave us there, does it? It doesn't give us the impression that Jesus is all alone. What does it tell us at the very end? And the angels were ministering to Him. When Adam, the first Adam, was driven out of the garden, what blocked his way? An angel and a flaming sword. This second Adam enters the world with all these things stacked against him. But what hasn't changed is God is still watching out for His man. He sends His angels as ministering spirits. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. And here we see that Jesus is cared for by His heavenly Father. He's not alone. And you might ask the question, why? And I hope you now are starting to get the answer firmly imprinted in you. Because of love. Because of love. See, we think about love as some, something romantic, some romantical idea of love and the birds start singing and the clouds part and the sun comes out. But I want you to see that love is serious business. Love makes a person do things that make no sense. Not because they run after somebody who's a derelict and do all kinds of nutty things, but rather, love actually says, I'm going to run after criminals. I'm going to run after haters. I'm going to run after adulterers. I'm going to run after wicked, horrible people. Why? And the only answer you can get is love. See, it's one of those frustrating circles that you run into. God loves us because He loves us. That's the reason. Because that's completely consistent with who He is. 
God is love. And we're only 13 verses in and Mark says, if you don't get this, you'll miss the whole point. You won't see it. You'll read this gospel and think, isn't that a cool story about a really moral guy who did really great things and taught incredible things and really did some amazing things? He's a great teacher. He's a great moral person. And you'll create all kinds of things of saying you ought to be like him, you ought to strive to be like him, and oh, Gandhi too, because he, and oh, let's throw in some MLK Jr. as well. You'll miss the whole point. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that anyone in this room who puts their faith in Him, believes in Him, should not perish, but will have ever lasting life. The Son of God's headed to the cross so that we could head to heaven. Never miss it. It's because of love. And this is why no matter what else should be said of Christians, It ought to be said of us at Desert Springs, just like it was said of the first century church. See how those Christians love one another. That's what the temptation of Jesus is really all about. Is love. Is God loving us. And this morning, if you don't know that love, you can. You can right now say, Lord Jesus, I know nothing about that kind of love. But I know that you can forgive me of my sins. And you can enable me right now for the first time to know real love right from the source. Not to hear about it, not to be told about it, but to get it right from the source. You can pray that this morning. And I pray that God would make it so in our midst. Amen.